1: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a hard fact of life that life can be hard. That might sound like bad news, but the good news is that therapy works and BetterHelp can help you find a therapist to do what you need to do to stay on track. Therapy is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, BetterHelp can help. I use therapy from time to time to help me sort through challenges, emotions, or just to ensure that I'm on track for the things that are important. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about, and special offer to Man God Law listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash MangodLaw. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash MangodLaw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
2: Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind.
1: This is Bob Dylan about man and God and all. There it is, 1965, the Newport Folk Festival, and Bob Dylan goes electric. In the annals of rock and roll, the annals of popular music, even in the annals of cultural history itself, over the period of time that Bob Dylan has been working all these many decades, few performances, few cultural events have drawn more attention or shaped more mythologies than Dylan going electric. Why? What is the cultural, spiritual, and religious significance of this performance? An entire book has been written about Dylan going electric, countless articles, interviews, discussions, reflections, witnesses, false and true. But who better to ask the question about the significance of this event in the life of culture and society than Catherine Lofton? Professor Catherine Lofton of Yale University. She's the Lex Hickson Professor of Religious Studies and American Studies, Professor of History and Divinity, and also the Dean of Humanities at Yale. Catherine has written about religion and spirituality and society on a vast array of topics. And we came across her article about Bob Dylan going electric thanks to another wonderful scholar at Yale, Professor Daphne Brooks had the opportunity to sit down with Catherine a few months ago and talk about and reflect upon this mythical moment in the history of rock what it means what we can hear in it and around it and through it it's a fascinating conversation with a fascinating scholar and it leads us to even more questions about the immense significance of what Dylan represents what he is And what he is not. Now, if this conversation draws your attention to a set of questions you're interested in, I encourage you to check out my book about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. I want to welcome you to episode five of season three of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Bob Dylan goes electric. You know, I've done my independent study with many of your articles in preparation because I wanted to be reasonably informed of of the vast array of topics that you covered. But um, religion and consumer culture has got to be one of your—I don't know if I would call it your favorite topics because it might be—it might, it might take us to dark places. But how how is it that you that you found yourself? Um, you know, we're going to do a little bit of um, of Bob Dylan uh, creative creation stories and mythologies. But I wonder in your mythology, how did you how did you find yourself? walking into this world of religious studies, which has obviously captured your attention for quite a while.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you it's very related to Dylan. Um, it's I, I, I was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, by two people who um, is, would be right to describe as, as uh, members of the counterculture, mm. uh, really, uh, figures for whom... Um, the desire to continue the left politics of the '60s was was pretty important, but I, I was born in the era of um, you know Carter and Reagan, so it's a different epoch for that political occupation and a moment when really I think we could we will go back and see historically that's when when you, the state of Wisconsin now ruled by a more uh, stronger space of Republican and right politics we could kind of time that to around then. And, and two events kind of coming together. One is Jonestown, which mm-hmm. I do think historians can make a claim contributed to the Reagan revolution in a lot of historians' of religion point to it as kind of the end of the religious counterculture. So a kind of calamitous to some, to understandably calamitous event. But an event that was the articulation of a, a seeking an interracial resolution to what the civil rights movement could not legally solve, which is the vast forms of structural racism, especially in questions of child and protective services. So the untold story of Jonestown is one about how that movement tried to help kids in foster care, tried to help homeless people, tried to make a unified interracial coalition to provide welfare for communities that are being unseen by a state that was definitively white supremacist. So it has its own calamitous end. That is a very loud event in the life of my own family. Um, But also then the emergence of these Reagan politics made my parents uh, even louder in their own left critique, because I think was true for a lot of people. Uh, As a result, by the time I go to college, uh, I, I hadn't really realized it. But once I did, um, I got to college at the University of Chicago and and saw and realized I had been raised in a secular orthodoxy, you know, and you're raised mm-hmm. in a place where socialist ideas are strong. You know, my parents had ideas about what stores you do and do not shop at every level of material culture was assessed constantly for with what was it complicit politically. Um, it was just a very loud conversation about materiality and what role we play as buyers and actors in these nation states. And then I, I went to college and realized, oh, many people weren't raised that way. Or just it was I realized that I had been raised in, in somewhat of a of a particular space and time and, and, and realized the word religion was one way to describe what I had grown up in, because every decision in some sense had a metaphysics attached to it. And one way to describe such a worldview is a religion and that actions have serious cosmological consequences. And I found at first I went to college thinking I'd studied public policy and, and was going to try to get in questions of fair housing and, um, and equitable public education. I, I actually ended up finding this was more interesting to me since it seemed like in the history of the world, religions had an interesting record of getting people to alter their daily practices in light of bigger metaphysics. And if we want to change the world, that might be what we need to do. Um, And I'm not sure if government's the best source. I began as this, I would say, kind of aspirational uh, liberal to reject my parents' liberalism. I was going to double down and be this pope. And then I kind of found myself realizing in time, I actually think all we have is to make people feel like there's a bigger meaning to who they are. Government's not good for that. We need to find other roots and conversational sources. And I think popular culture and consumer culture are spaces where people are making decisions constantly to make their lives move faster, easier, better, stronger, more beautiful. What if we tilted some of those values in other directions? Um, so that's the place I wanted to tinker with. And in.
1: Amazing. So you found an organizing principle, uh, a field of study, personally, the family, and I'm jumping, you know, maybe, you um, decades ahead. But um, one of the key themes that we've been working on in the in the conversations on this podcast, and one that I really hold fast to in the book is Dylan's demanding question rhetorical question in like a Rolling Stone, how does it feel? Mm. And I read um, your piece, uh, based on or excerpted from your book on Oprah Winfrey. And the title is has anyone talked about how it feels? Did you have like a rolling stone in mind when you, I, did, uh, I did, I did, I not, did. I don't want to do, I, you know, I, I don't want to have any spoiler, I, spoiler alerts. Uh, I, I put a spoiler word. Cause I want to recommend that people read the piece that will lead them to the book, but tell us about uh, sort of what, where the resonance was there. Curious.
0: Oh, thank you, Stephen. I so appreciate that. And you're the first person to, um, to, to, to raise that. I think actually there's a, there's a lot of, um of Dylan inlaid in, in, in a lot of the ways that I meander in the world and, one of the ways I, I think about him is how to be critical of myself in that in that leaning on because mm. he is an imperfect artist and poet but nonetheless for me a very inspiring one um so actually that piece which was in the Yale review um this last year was uh is not a part of my book I wrote a book in okay. 2011 and I, I point that out because the book I wrote in 2011 was a pretty tough um very young scholar angry really angry um reading of how uh Oprah makes her space, a, a place of seeming spiritual exploration that always has financial costs. So the book I wrote, Oprah, The Gospel of Nikon, tries to take up Oprah as a really important figure in American religious history. Um, and a, a figure I think is actually even more consequential to the things that happen in this country religiously than the movement that was getting tons of airplay in my field at the time, the Christian right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to nominate her as an important character to have alongside the, that simultaneous 80s era rise of the Christian right. Mm. Notice who's also rising. Notice the kind of power she's exerting. I think it's safe to say we live in a world that moves between the politics of the Christian Right and the politics of Oprah Winfrey. And there are some overlapping elements, some love of the family, some enshrinement of motherhood as a sacred figure, but definitely plays out very differently politically and, and racially. Um, but nonetheless, the thing that I was so struck by in consuming a lot of Oprah, just the excess of consumption and the way in which purchase is power, purchase is materialized, in is a form of spiritualized power. And I really found that depressing, um, but I think I was at times in that book and trying to cut and make my own name, I, I admit I, I didn't uh, admit to as much as I should have how she made people feel. And mm-hmm. in my effort to provide a Marxist indictment of what was wrong with what it meant to consume Oprah, I missed why even I, in those ten years, I consumed her felt seen and soothed at times, even as I knew it was maybe the best form of soothing a person can get. Uh, it was something like she really works hard to hear the speaker where they are and to name back to them what she's hearing. And in that interrelation, she is not only affirming, she also does and leaves open a place of criticism, Um, but she digs into, she spelunks into human feeling with a great acuity. And that piece I wrote was in response to the interview she did with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, where I think she did this, it was a masterclass in how to be alongside and extract enormous information from someone while not only being affirming of what they are or are doing, and for me, there's something that Dylan made possible in his rhetorical his his rhetorical choices are never to settle the question. Mm-hmm. It's to involve the listener every time in what he is struggling through. And for me, like like Rolling Stone is a song frequently on repeat. One, the way in which it it pulls us into a politics that he does not resolve for us. Mm. He simply says and tries to set a stage, I think, especially in that song, but many others. What are the varieties of discomforts you're having? What kind of through line might help? If we started talking, every revolution begins with groups of people agreeing that how they feel Mm. is not right. It's not right that we feel this way. And negative revolutions we wouldn't support, fascism has that to origin, but also democratic calls for more inclusion and more governance by the people. And I think he's been really a consistent, for a person who I think is probably personally actually difficult to engage with on questions of human feeling, he's a pretty acute um, voice for the importance of using feeling as a tool of thinking about political life.
1: So it, amazing uh, axes here. So there's the poll of empathy and um being able to see and hear the other um from wherever they come from and then creating that kind of i don't know emotional parking lot to hold um whatever comes out in the conversation and yet at the other pole and and for the mere cost of a book a month for the oprah book club right you can or i will give you a car if you really are willing to Spill right your emotional, uh, your 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 internal experience. Um, how is it different um, to have lined up the nineteen ninety five or the twenty seven ninety five or the thirty five dollar purchase at Barnes and Noble from um, buy my record, right? Buy my record. I, I will I will ask you how it feels on my record, um, but buy my record so that you can really have the experience of me asking you.
0: Mm. You know, I, I, I watch as students struggle so much with this question. How do I exist in capital? How do I exist as a critic and yet survive? I'm an artist. This is not a country that has invested in a, the social safety net that would make possible artistry without profound indignity in the absence of commodification. So mm. who is to be angry at Oprah? or at Bob Dylan for the choices they have made to survive. And yet both of their careers are filled with critical moments where their consumers, audiences, listeners fight back. Where do they feel especially uncomfortable? I'm sorry, you can't quite go there. I'll let you do that, but don't do that. And I I think that the reason I wrote again about Oprah recently after leaving her alone for about 10 years is I felt afraid of my own adulthood and thinking I I I was not wrong to see how she used luxury and materiality uh, in a way that did align more with spaces that I would describe as the prosperity gospel. Oprah is a true believer that, you know, the right wealth comes to the right people. She is not a person out there advocating for a broadened social safety net. And in that, she and I are on opposite sides of a political fight. But I also was allied with her as a person who has fought forward in public life to make emotions, and especially female-identified emotions, is critical to naming the limits of our suffering. So Mm -hmm. it is not only on the other side, and I think trying to find the language of allyship, solidarity, requires us not merely to point out the failures of someone else's actions in light of our politics, but also to seek where do we have pretty substantive common ground. And you know the contemporary field of the humanities has a very strong thread of something called affect studies that thinks a lot about the way that signaling feeling has made such a consequential light. We could say that Donald Trump was an especially gifted manager mm. of the American of the American male affect and understanding what are the signals that people just brutally want to see on the public stage and feel recognized by his grotesque performance of masculinity is an appealing set of micro affects. and Oprah is really great too at helping a large audience become more literate in talking about feeling. I think for me as a person growing up when I first encountered Bob Dylan it was the idea and I think it was for a generation of um, largely white men a voice of poetry that felt like it hit a high register of Norton anthology accomplishment, like game recognizing game for a lot of young men who wanted to be artists, wanted to be geniuses. And he really does seem to hit that bill, but also did it through the acuity of self-perception. So, you know, I think a generation of white men got Bob Dylan as their emotional educator. And especially as he moves into aging and I think the post eighties albums, you just have a lot of sound that I think has helped a generation of people think about what it is to be an aging person in this modernity. And I think likewise, Oprah helped several generations of women figure out how to manage a situation in capital that was really unfair to their unpaid laborers, mothers, to their underserved leadership in their economic pursuits, to the ways in which they were never at the center of any story. She gave a language of legibility. Was she fighting for the revolution I want? No, but she gave a vocabulary that I think can help us get closer to naming our common suffering. And I think there's no question Bob Dylan did that too.
1: Amazing. So, so I'm starting to think about, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit, I hope in a bit about um, the age of Dylan, uh, the age of rock and roll, the mm-hmm. age of all of these different um, trend lines that sort of come together where the counterculture meets consumer culture and, 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 and we, I think we can point our finger sort of to 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 some of the victors and some of the spoils. But really, um, you're describing a, an age of Dylan and Oprah. You're also describing the age of you know Joel Osteen. Um, and and in your in your narrative, you trace it back to Jonestown. I mean, talk about a a a um, uh, a a big bang, a eureka, a cultural eureka. Um, and and you. You found yourself um, with with your uh, a- array of scholarly points of view and methodologies, and um, obviously a very rich lived experience of of a lot of these concepts and issues. Of all places, you found yourself in Newport in 1965, um, and and the title of the piece that I found um, through your colleague Daphne Brooks, who is really one of my um, Music critic scholarly heroes who who introduced us and we're hoping mine to have on the show. <laughs> oh yeah, and and her piece on um, speaking of ages, you know that age of Dylan gives way to the age of Beyonce. I mean, has mm-hmm. given way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she said, you know, Stephen, this is this is a person you've got to talk to, and if you haven't seen it, you need to read this piece. So um, so the piece is called Dylan Goes Electric religion and race in rocks, secularizing event. Um, And it appears in the journal of, of popular music studies. And I don't want to be, you know, accused by our friends out there in the ether of going too hard on the academic. I have a doctorate as well, but, um, you come from a really rich academic background, Dean of humanities at Yale university, a chair in the religious studies department. Um, but you really rock in this, um, in this piece. I want to bring people into it um, and just break down a couple of the um, key elements just in the title, what what they actually mean, um, uh, how does it feel, right? And <laughs> then sort of walk through the piece a little bit with these incredible dichotomies and analysis that um, that you've presented here, which I really appreciate that Daphne was able to Turn me, turn me on to this. The, to to Catherine Lofton goes electric on Dylan. So this was this was a this was a real winner for me. The, the, the religion and race in Rock's secularizing event. Can you can you help me understand what a secularizing event is? Would that be is that too big an ask for a no, you know, forty five minute uh, podcast <laughs> conversation?
0: <Couldn't do> that. <laughs> no, I just I want to thank you. Um, Writing this piece was so powerful for in my life experience in part because of the, the intimacy I'm so honored to share with Daphne and, and witnessing her teaching. And um, one of the many lessons that she teaches me is what it means to understand Rock's interracial story uh, with real critique and consciousness, how to find again the, the The ways in which blackness has been obscured from that tradition, a tradition that I loved deeply, often with real racial unconsciousness Mm -hmm. in my youth. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of work but had my own sense of talking about how it feels. I had my discomforts. So I remember being a young girl and being in a meeting that uh, that my uh, parents were having in the house and often records would be playing at the end as kind of the party atmosphere took over from the political atmosphere. And um, I remember a, a, a friend of theirs, you know, a white guy who I, I thought at the time was a very cool person. He seemed mm-hmm. cool in his activism. His personhood. And they were listening to um, Blood on the Tracks. And he just started ranting about Dylan as an electric musician and that there's nothing that he did better than his folk days. So this really kind of passionate Sermon on the Mount about the the, the sacrality of what I now would call the sacrality of the folk. Back mm-hmm. then, I heard it as an eager, um, near-adolescent girl person who wanted to be cool, who had internalized patriarchy and really wanted men especially to like her, thinking that they made the vanguard of what intellectual life was. This was not a feminist film. It go without saying that you know the white counterculture is not a very feminist praxis? And so I, that I loved Bob Dylan and, was, and knew that Joan Baez wasn't really great because she didn't write good music and really was just like all of that was just so laid in and then to hear this voice and he's ranting he seems so passionate about it and i and even last i I mentioned to my parents because we listened to a lot of rock music with electric guitars i couldn't understand why this the sacrality said and they told a story about what 65 was what and and i i could have opened the article with a depiction of that just that their own their they had different opinion from him but it nonetheless taught me wow this is a big deal when a guy just plugs in guitar why, why was this so heartbreaking? And and for me, that, the talk about a secularizing event is to talk about, you know, the phrase secularization quite literally means the removal of church things. So if you have a church that you secularize, there's often rituals that need to happen to remove the sacred items from that church space. So the secularizing is the removal of things that are required for ritual action in a religious scene. In the field that I'm in, religious studies, secularism studies has become an incredibly big field in the last Mm -hmm. 50 years. And a lot of the work is to look at spaces, ideas, laws, that look like the churchliness has been removed, but how it is still ghostly and there. So how it is, I'm right now in a building that is designed in the collegiate Gothic style. It's an imitation of um, English architecture of Oxford and Cambridge. So you could say Yale University is a secular university. It welcomes all tribes and creeds. I did not have to sign anything that said I worship um, at the altar of any religion when I came here. And yet it is not coincidental, certain features of our administrative hierarchy are quite evocative of ecclesial structures. And a lot of our sacred terms, I argue, are not that far from its origin, which was founded as a school for Christian ministers in 1701. So in on one sense, Yale has become secularized. It is no longer in its churchly habit. There are elements of it that still stand and are still around so i think 65 was a secularizing event because in rock music history when he plugs in that guitar it goes from being a variety of traditions that is all the different sectarian pieces that we could talk about in 50s and early 60s sound and it becomes this is our sound now the sound of rock is the sound of this instrument and what I wanted to think about is, A, what are we evading? Because there was a lot of electric guitar prior to 65 being used, as sure. You know better than I do. It's also what are we missing and, and what is the evasion of earlier moments to make so electric as events often involve people that didn't look like Bob Dylan or made sound that was not as I think we can all talk about what the rock sound becomes. But what, when we talk about blues and what's missing, we don't talk about it. I think that moment is a cleaning of the story of rock music. It also becomes mythologized over and over again as a definitive yeah. instance.
1: Amazing. So um, I, I, I wanna walk us through the concept a little bit. I was sure. thinking as you were speaking, you know, I'm, I'm, you're in uh, New Haven presumably right now. I'm in yes. Jerusalem. In Hebrew, the word for secular is chiloni, which comes from the word for empty, right? Wow. It comes from the word for empty. So we say, you know, the holiday of Passover is coming, and the intermittent days of Passover, there's a holiday at the beginning, a festival day at the beginning and the end, it's called Cholomoed, it's the empty days of the festival, Mm
0: -hmm. okay,
1: so like there is a structure, right, there's a structure that is emptied out, but the walls are still there, so I'm thinking about Max Weber, I'm thinking about the Iron Cage, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking obviously about um, uh, you know, the, some of the literature of, of secular, the secular, secular age. Um, and so here we, we've, we've literally set the stage, right? So, so rough and tumble Dylan, I don't know, he's 25 years old, 24, 25 years old. He's got the leather jacket. Mm-hmm. He's got the famous, uh, the famous shirt. I don't remember if it's the striped shirt or the polka dotted shirt, the shades. The boys are taking the stage. They're all boys, obviously. I'm, you know, we, we must we must uh, w- witness the truth as it was. It was it was a very male, and it was mm-hmm. I don't know what it was because, as you say in the article, it seems like a bit of a Roshamon situation where everybody is dumping into that chiloni, that 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 quote unquote yeah. empty space, whatever blank they want to dump into it, and and you're you're unpacking it. Um, or or describing it, or rewitnessing it, or, I don't know, like he says in Desolation Row, uh, all these people that you mentioned, I know them, they are quite lame. I had to rearrange their faces and give them all another name. Uh, right now, I can't read too good. Don't send me no letters. No, not unless they're written from Desolation Row. I don't know. W- whatever's being rearranged here, and you're rearranging it, race, religion, electricity, Dylan. What is happening on that stage and and how much um, mythology has has blossomed out of that that really matters to how we experience music and really the world? I mean, that's the article, so you don't have to rewrite the whole article for us here. But I I think there's so many places to tether the imagination to wherever you would want to take it.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that um, I I originally presented on this topic at a conference that was trying to think about um the relationship between materialism and spirituality so spirituality is a word that um you know many people use kind of easily other kind of you know don't like and reject think it's an ugly word so you have to first of all assess what's your relationship to the word spirituality um i'm very interested as a critical category of just of describing something that is often imagined to be not orthodox not um resistant to tradition. Is that always true spirituality? No, spirituality often re-manifests a lot of orthodoxies, but it's aspiration, it's idea. And I I, I thought about the question of the history of electrification, because there's some really beautiful cultural history that's been written about the emergence of electricity in the 19th century, the popularization of it, Mm. how A, it had to be something that people learned to feel unthreatened by, that its first appearance um, seemed to elicit worries of, uh, you know, as always new technology does, a kind of fear and excitement. And depending on who you were, what did you think this might speak about the future of the world? Um, but also that it created these, uh, there, there was a lot of early uh, displays of electricity. People would travel around the country and include and often incorporate in magic shows displays of right. electrical power. So that scholarship really focused on how electricity is is tied into a ritual past of thinking about power. It now is a utility that we treat in this flat, you could say empty way. It's just, Mm -hmm. just, we need it. But when it was introduced, it was a component of, and we must admit even as a utility is a tool of power. So then we get, as we move forward and thinking about the role of electricity uh, and trying to make the death penalty more humane, uh, is is electric, electrification, a more humane way of uh, electrocution, a more humane way of treating a person as as a tool of death? Well, is the death penalty itself something to think and wonder about? And one thing I, I, I think about in the piece is how blues music takes on the electric chair very differently than these people who are selling electricity as a source of humanity. So trying to point out that pretty early on, the white purveyors of a new technology find some critical energy coming back at them if they choose to listen to it from a world mm. of creativity, blues music, that does not think this is a positive movement for of humanity. And not surprisingly, disproportionately, black bodies find themselves being electrocuted. Right. So um, so one of the things I wanted to think about is just that always back there's an there's a, um, interrelation between moments of incitement and creation. And whoever is in power making those new innovations happen, we should keep an eye on the way in which they're probably also propagating a particular racial and gendered spectrum as they're also doing something creative, exciting, powerful, and new. So we arrive at Dylan, and I give a kind of prehistory to narratives of electrification to show how they are racialized. They're always in dynamic. There's excitement, but there's also a fear. And we get to this event that then you can't read. First of all, there's two books entirely about the event. That's right. You know, there's not a biography of Dylan that doesn't give a whole chapter to it. And it's this kind of classic mythological encounter. Depending on who you are and where you're interested in, you might be more focused on what was the acoustics that he played before? What does he then go do afterwards? Why is this the space that the language of Judas first emerges in relationship to who he is? Why is the language always religious? in relation to marking him in this hour. But the Pete Seeger figure who's standing nearby as is he an old light to Bob Dylan's new light and here I'm invoking a particular Presbyterian controversy in the um, early 19th century United States to say that there's this cataclysm of old and new. But once you start getting into the facts of the case, you start boiling down all the evidence, it's actually pretty hard to find at the event itself proof that the audience was disgusted. What you find proof of is a confusing uh, moment that might be about sound quality. Period. But let's just—I'd you know, be interested in your own opinion. But um, you know, what is the archival instance of the scene? We don't—we have enough evidence to say some things about it, but nothing definitive about audience rejection. So what gets interesting is why does it, subsequently entering the press, immediately become manifest through mediation as an event you you wanted to be at or you did want to be at because it symbolized everything. So as a historian, I'm interested in going from an event that maybe doesn't have all the facts in a row you need to say it was controversial, but no doubt within weeks of it, it became understood as a epical event.
1: So it's an epical event. And um, I'm not even sure that Dylan um, plans all of these things. He has an incredible intuition towards the mythic, the mysterious. It could just be his innate um, iconoclasm. Um, It is um, clear though that um, he he is both enraged by the mythology that's emerging of him being Judas and the traitor and when he says from the stage in Manchester Free Hall, uh, I don't believe you, play effing loud, right? We are going to electrocute you for Uh, saying uh, that I'm Judas. I have more power than you right now. I own the stage. I own the instruments. I've got a great band. They can actually play music, while all you suckers out there are just, you know, barely able to clap your hands to the beat. You know, I'm gonna take over, I'm gonna take on the Beatles. I'm gonna take on everyone. Two months later, he essentially disappears from the public stage for a long time. Another mythological event was it a was it truly a motorcycle accident? Was he looking for a way out of a contract? Um, was he uh, uh, brain damaged? Did he die? Was he looking to spend more time with Sarah? Was he trying to avoid Sarah? Choose your choose your uh, trope, uh, choose your narrative. So you know, not long after these these this, there's a string then of of mythological moments. Um, it's it's um... I
0: just want to say that the, the amazing that in this moment that the song that we're talking about is Maggie's Farm. Yeah. Just to go back to your great invocation of secular. It does so because anyone who knows the song, he basically is going through it. You know, I ain't gonna work from Maggie's pa, I ain't gonna work from Maggie's ma. Everyone is that they're stuck on bad ideas, you know, the pa's talking about God, talking about a big game, but full of shit. I mean, effectively, Dylan's going through every figure in this song and saying, I'm getting out. We're getting out of this morality and we're gonna enter some new place, some wandering man's, I, this me now attaching, I kind of it's an announcement of cosmopolitan status and I'm free from the place that I came from, which was pulled down. I mean, that really, I think feeds the possibility that there was a consciousness to what he was doing of all possible tracks he chose to launch with. This one is a pretty strong, his kind of pugnacious personality on full display lyrically.
1: It is fascinating to see though, this is not, um, you know, Zeus and Hera. Uh, this is not um, Aquinas saying that it's all straw. Uh, th- this happened within close to our lifetimes. We were both born after, but um it f- sort of feels like we were there. I guess that's what myths are for. you You kind of feel a little bit of the fomo, you know, you you missed out, but on the other hand, it's rich enough so that it feels almost like it's in the ether. It's almost like you were there. or maybe you want to work your way back to it. Somehow, if you could only find the right golden ticket, you'd be able to actually see for yourself what happened there. Um, what happened there, vis-a-vis one of the key themes in in um, your article in in and in your work, and obviously in our in our culture as a whole, what happened there from the perspective of race? What happened there? Or more perhaps uh, a, a better question would be um, what. Got laid onto that, what was layered upon that? Where, what do you see in that myth, that mythic moment vis a vis race?
0: Yeah. So, um, I, I would, the, the, one of the key phrases for me in this piece, or I think I really wanted to, and again, for me, this is so derived from learning from Daphne, but um, my object being primarily religion, I wanted to talk about the unreflective secular of rock music criticism. And what I mean by that is that secularism studies tries to describe what is the thing in the emptiness that the secular proposes it is. So many people who um, love rock music and, and some of the great rock criticism acts and then performs, uh, I would say the voice of the philosopher, the free thinker, the um, I'm here just listening, man. And there's nothing in my system that's holding me back. I'm, I'm game for it all. And anything that's holding you back is probably something like religion or pa and ma or something old school, okay? Well, that's an extremely white disposition in modernity to be able to be a person who says, I just get to be ruled, I do what I want, I get to be ruled by nothing, I get to be guided by my spirit, I go where I wanna go. Uh, I could be a huge celebrant of Bob Dylan and also see that his career is only possible in his very particular physical and phenotypic incarnation and every part of that. And there's beautiful criticism that writes about the important role of being a Midwestern, of being a Jew, of being a particular kind of heterosexual male. All of those things were particularities. And I think Dylan is a fascinating racial figure, but he was interested in the manifestation of his own free whiteness, that the very image of a guy who works on a railroad, who's just a rambling man, who can be a rambler? Not everyone can be safely a rambler without being stigmatized. So in this very event, where his freedom gets incarnated and I'm gonna plug in this guitar and this sound is mine. And he does it without fear. And to be clear, no one should be, everyone should should be able to be this free, but not everybody gets to do it with such profound confidence that there will be only discursive responses to your assertion of freedom. And black folk in this country cannot imagine that when they assert their artistic freedom, they are always gonna receive back a safe nod. You keep going, you keep seeing. Even more that I think the traditions of the electric guitar, as many historians have already observed, are black. And the way in which the guitar now gets attached to a white figure in a mid-60s moment, after you could say 40 years of pretty profound engagement of the electric guitar by a high level of artistry, what is to make this the moment? And I want to say here I am, you know, an Alan Shepard thinking with like the 1619 project, which is asking mm. when we make 1776 the date of the start of this country, what are we highlighting? We're highlighting some great things, good for 1776, but there's other national stories to be told. 1619 says, what if we started it here? We watched the profound controversy that pours out when a group of people, a group of intellectuals decide to publicly say, what if it was 1619? They're not shooting any guns. They're just suggesting an alternative horizon based on a re-racialization of the past, mm. and it's shocking and upsetting. So 65 is a moment. I'd be interested if we could put the date earlier in a moment when we watched as the guitar is first, I think, made great and electric in the hands of very different persons, whose success and popularity is, you know, not anywhere near Dylan's. Mm. And the Dylan himself, I would say, has not been, in my opinion, a pretty um, a strong enough anti-racist thinker in public, given how much he benefits from black sound, black creativity. And I've written more about this, especially in his relationship to gospel music and how he has uh, in his Christian period, which I actually think is a really fascinating and, and beautiful one, but that sound is, a, it, it's not simply a question of appropriation because Dylan is always using all the past traditions of folk sounds but he hasn't, to me, been the greatest in thinking about what kind of restitution or reparation, not just in terms of money, but also in terms of celebration we could do to try to honor that. That moment in 65 in a long prehistory, and after that had a continued valorization of the white male figure holding that guitar.
1: The, the pain point for Dylan, it seems that he, um, it, it's one of the few places where he's got a bit, you know, another white Jewish figure. He's got Leonard Cohen's self critique around issues of race blind willie McTell is a song about how a white singer can never do anything more than barely barely witness the black singer i mean he's saying i he's saying i get it as much as i can get it i can look out the window i can see it i can smell it i can almost feel it but i can't do it um and he has said almost since the beginning that he's a song and dance man which means minstrelry, right? Which means yes. love and theft, yes. obviously, yes. Uh, is 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 another not so tongue in cheek admission of of that form of appropriation. Whatever you know terminology you want to bring to it. At the end of the day, he does admit from the stage and in the songs um, that he is um, he is playing a role and he is hanging himself on. The words, the the patterns, the tropes, the identities, the whole the whole piece, um, but he does not come out and say it the way that Joni Mitchell said it about Dylan when she said, "Yeah, he's a fake, right? He's a fake." Now um, you talk a lot about, well. We, we all talk and think about authenticity, rock and rolls mythology is based on the idea that, you know, the rocker is authentic because the rocker doesn't give a shit because the rocker is the rebel, because the rocker will put into their body and do with their body and do with other people's bodies, whatever the rocker pleases, right? It's, you know, it's um, it's just, uh, you know, the, the melting away of, of all the boundaries, um, that's authenticity. Um, it's a pretty cheap form of authenticity, right? And, and it does require lots of other bodies to be available to be authentic with, right? And lots of other people to um, prop up the authentic uh, rocker who doesn't need an alarm clock, but does need a staff of 70 people to make sure that they get to the show on time, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, how could it be that anyone in rock and roll could be a, a, a model for authenticity? And yet, lives change because of a song or a line in a song or an experience at a performance or bonding over uh, some form of music. So where do we see the authenticity when we see clearly the price that's paid by all the elements that it takes to prop up the supposed authenticity of the Dylan or mm. some other rocker of that ilk.
0: That's just so well said, Stephen. I, 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 in my mind goes immediately to um, trying to chase down, and here, um, you know, I think the question of identifying ways in which to deconstruct one's own mythology seems now like such an obvious political choice to make. We live in the last five years, we could say we've seen a pretty radical transformation of what it is understood to be a celebrity, how to understand your accountability to a public. Um, what kind of sensitivities has the culture been uh, trained up in such that the discourse around uh, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock? does not yet fully achieve all the intellectual heights I think it could, but we have seen a lot of very substantive intellectual contributions by a wide array of thinkers trying to evaluate the cultural salience of that moment of racial encounter, that is the encounter of the white academy with a Black actor and a Black comedian, and and that kind of, that moment I think will be continued to be studied at, I hope, really high levels of thinking about what what, is, what made that scene and what made it seem legitimate the form of the Academy's punishment of, of Will Smith. Um, to be very clear, you know what we need to do now is not decide morally on behalf of every subject, but I think to be open to the space of critique. And what's interesting in mythology is how often critique is evaded. So why I think, you know, we think the interview, the celebrity interview is gonna be the space. And that's why those famous interviews that Dylan has with Rolling Stone over the years but my, my concern is those interviews are extremely fawning. It's actually quite hard after around 1969 to find a lot of tough questions being posed to Bob Dylan. And that's because most of the people interviewing him are like you and me, really delight. And when you delight in something, it becomes harder to say the tougher things to it. Not because you don't think them. I think tough things about my kid. I think tough things about my partner but because your love supersedes that feel. You want to retain the feeling of love over and above the feeling of critique. But what if we could somehow build critique into our celebrity affections, understand that? And I think if social media has one interesting aspect among its many troubling and dispiriting features, I think it makes for the celebrity a greater um, opportunity to receive and think with the public about what they're doing now. that can lead to a paralysis of analysis Or it can lead to a different dialogue. And I think some of our stronger celebrities now, like Cardi B, has learned Mm. it's not merely I do what the public tells me. It's I speak back. I give different answers. I say why I'm doing what I'm doing. I create a theory of this persona rather than assume the persona itself is just axiomatically valuable because you like it. And Mm. I think Dylan understandably became ensnared, and he wrote beautifully about this, ensnared in his own celebrity and had to create increasing forms of distance um, and increasing rituals of excess performance to try to keep the real going for him. Mm. But I also wonder if he just done a little bit more interpersonal work on himself, might he have been a better exponent and speaker about the Mm. very experience he was having. And therefore also more than just looking outside in, he could have been a different ally to black people and that he has not been is going to be a mark on his career. It's not the condemnation of his career. He does not need to be as, I think so many white observers are worried about, canceled. But I think his excellence can bear a truly meaningful Black feminist critique of who he was as a person. And I think that's, by the way, also true of a lot of other bands and leaders. Jagger deserves that (laughs) indictment and if you watched, Six Feet from Stardom, a mixed documentary in terms of its own perspective, but you did not come away loving how Mick Jagger understood the Black women he worked with and would not have had a career without the sailing voices that he got around him as a white singer that legitimated him and both me and Dylan needed those Black women nearby to make him seem like the real song and dance man that's down with what the very different yeah. sound that they need for their survival.
1: Yeah. Wow, yeah, and, 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 and I'm, I'm seeing already, I, I just see how the Rolling Stones are gonna, are gonna fade. I think the music of the Rolling Stones are gonna fade. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with the Beatles, what happens with Dylan, you know, um, in terms of, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the different elements there. Um, I, I, I wanna throw into the mix here, um, apropos like a Rolling Stone, apropos race, apropos electric guitar, I wanna throw in Jimi Hendrix. Um, You know, because um, I don't know, I go through pages where that's all I can listen to is Jimi Hendrix, because it just seems like it comes from such a place that it's so complicated and interesting and otherworldly. And I know those are all cliches, but it's music, so it's sort of hard to describe what the experience is other than than a bit of that cliche. Um, Just two years after Dylan's performance of Maggie's farm. Uh, Jimi Hendrix performs like a Rolling Stone at the Monterey Pop Festival. Mm -hmm. That's also the Monterey Pop Festival where Otis Redding performed. And, you know, in some ways, I think that they may be two of, who can say, but two of the greatest performances, widely known performances in the history of rock and roll. And you had a fair number of the quote unquote royalty of the day who, who watched that happen. And in a sense, you know, the, any boundary of music was just exploded by those two performers. Hendrix specifically, um, what he is able to do with the electric guitar, it's two years after this controversy. It's two years later. And he really takes Dylan's song in the most unassuming way and says, as he introduces his drummer, that that's Bob Dylan's grandma on the drums. In the performance itself that's the recording right it's mm-hmm. he said it um I, I don't know have you have you thought about jimi hendrix and, and and electricity and guitar and race as sort of a a kind of response a, a parsing of this particular mythology and extension of it um in the in the mythology of rock and roll a few moments also go beyond two years after that, Jimi Hendrix playing the Star-Spangled Banner at Woodstock. And then two years after that, he is gone. He is gone, he would still be playing, he would still be playing. So all that authenticity, all that excess, all of that racial baggage, all of that uh, drug, sex, the whole thing, you know, Jimi Hendrix is the guitarist to my mind, you know, when you talk about the electric guitar. Where's 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 that piece in the puzzle and what do we do with that that compressed so timeline?
0: Even, yes, I'm actually working on a piece this oh, uh, summer um, on the electric church because I oh, that's, wow. as, as those listeners know who know Jimmy well. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it was when I was working on this piece, it made it too long. I had this lengthy section at the okay. end. How could we subvert the story? Well, one would be to go earlier and point out um, blues performances as the origin, or let's just resituate the story around. Yes, Great. and I think that that Star Spangled Banner performance, um, and it's, it's I'm taking off here from Farrar Griffin, a, a scholar at Columbia University, who's written about Black women's vocality, especially at these moments of singing the national anthem, um, mm. and I wanted to add in and think about what he he spoke so movingly in his life about where he found the God in his work. He was not. A religious person, but well, he but he was not a denominationally religious person. But he spoke often in religious metaphor. He said, "Music is my religion." Multiple times, he talked about where God was incarnated in the process, the relation he was making in a sound, and he spoke this language of the electric church is where he belonged. And I wanted to I want to take up that that thought, and I, I specifically do also uh, I want to think about the way in which his end of life has been narrated, what that mm. moment has meant, um, how that is not, I think, enshrined in quite the way way I think we should be thinking about what his death should have told us and thinking about adding his death to the tally of black death. that includes Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And thinking about who lives and who dies. And um, I mark this as I wrote a short thing about Adele this fall. And I find myself against all my better instincts, falling into Adele, liking Adele, listening to Adele. I also think about why is Whitney Houston dead? Why did Otis Redding die? Why does it seem like that? Why did Donnie Hathaway die? Why did Marvin Gaye die? I, I cite Marvin and Whitney and Donnie intentionally. Those are singers that Adele cites as her influences, her love of the soul sound. So, why do they? Well, there are reasons why Black death happens disproportionately, disproportionately young. And the way in which I think white artists can be supporters, allies. They do not need to cease their artistry they do not need to cease their money making they need to think as we all do about with whom am i complicit in the power i am making bob dylan walked past many people dying on the road in his success he's not responsible for their deaths he's responsible for living in a society that benefited him more than them in the process of being commodified and it's Mm -hmm. not coincidental that commodification affects different bodies and i think Bill will be the first person to say that becoming famous, becoming rich was hard, difficult. You had to figure it out. Why did he have the resources to stabilize and why do others not? Let's not be simple minded about this. Let's bring in a racial critique to something that everyone can still be standing in their wealth and power, but more complicit with one another, with those who are not in the room at the end.
1: Hmm. So we have a lot to look forward to with with a piece on the electric church. That will be, that's very exciting. Um, yeah,
0: well, thank you. Not, I had had yeah. but yet yeah, it was this piece really made me realize my own complicity. And every time I participate in thinking about a white past in popular culture, I I want to also then think about what is missing, not just the form. Tea, yeah. this piece takes up, but also can I participate in making different stories forward? And I, you know, some listeners might be laughing. What, what role do academics play in retail? I agree with you. I don't think academics, we play a very small role in the world's mythologization, but we do play a role. And I think it's, it's important not only to say what's wrong with the stories we tell, but what other stories we might begin to offer.
1: So, um, uh, I, I, I will, I will cite, um, Uh, a line from the conclusion of of the piece on on Dylan, the piece Dylan Goes Electric, where you say religion should be a major project in popular music. Uh, I vote yes on that. I mean, that's that's really kind of what my book is about. And, you know, basically a parsing on that line from Maggie's Farm, Man and God and Law is, um, you know, to me, intentional, unintentional, I'll never know, it doesn't matter, you know, a kind of, musical cultural parsing that Dylan does, which is so rich. I mean, those fields to sow, and how did he get to Maggie's farm in the first place? And what is he citing and all those different pieces. Um, so I, I you know, don't really travel in rock and roll circles per se. I don't really travel in any circles per se, but I have found that um, a, a fair number of people that I've spoken to um, when we talk about religion and Dylan they just want to talk about well, is he Jewish or is he Christian? Is he still a born again Christian? Is he a Lubavitcher? Like, what's he do? Like, what's his? And I say, look, he's he's um, he's a bit sui generous, uh, but his choices religiously are fundamentalist. Usually, uh, he went uh, hard to the to the fundamentalist Christianity. Um, he was literally chapter and verse, and um, there are plenty of people who have um, I would say a more robust layers of religious knowledge from many other traditions who have said boy classic case of of someone who just got sucked right in you know very um very easily right to the to the hard edge the fundamentalist edge and the same is true in the jewish realm where his jewish alliances from what we know are chabad lubavitch which you know does some beautiful things but it is an essentially i mean in my take it's It's just another form of patriarchal fundamentalist religion. I love Chabad in the way I can appreciate, you know, elements. Um, It's not that kind of religion that I care about when I think about Bob Dylan or when I think about music. I care about how does it feel? I care about the fact that Donald Trump can use as the most simple textbook power play the Christian right to do things that on paper I mean, as horrifying and horrific as one could imagine, what is a religious person doing in the same room as someone like that? And what is rock and roll? What is popular music? What does hip hop, what do we have to say about that in music, which still, despite the fact that the empire of popular music perhaps doesn't have the same capacity to uh, centralize messages that maybe it could have had, there is... I can't think of a media still that has more impact, creative media than music. Music literally is the soundtrack of our lives. We are with music everywhere and all the time. When you say that religion should be a major project in popular music, well, well how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Is is it is it is it finding Cardi B and Beyoncé and whatever's left of the classic rockers and Putting together a, a coalition of, of people who talk about spirituality and humanity and empathy and retrain themselves with us to talk about the message of Jesus in Nazareth? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a conference? Are you, are you organizing a, <laughs> a mm-hmm. conference? W- where is religion going to come through popular culture in a way that doesn't reek of fundamentalism?
0: Ooh. First of all, Stephen, I'm just so excited about your book and, and the way that you just described what your question is. It's it's just gonna be so important for Dylan's study. So I hope we get a chance to talk again about oh, that. Um, Thank you and so the that. way in which even in that project, you're making a move towards the conversation we need, which is for all I want is for us to get away from thinking denomination, that is Chabad, that's a denomination or what mm-hmm. one word you could use to describe a it's a type of a form of Judaism. Um, is the sole way of talking about what religion is as a subject of study. You know, at its origin of scholarly interest, religion is theorizing how we define ourselves as social beings. And whatever research you do with the origin of homo sapien sapien, you find extremely early records of people reckoning with questions of the dead and the relationship between this material world and powers beyond this material world. So, the point of talking about religion is, is, has been narrowed down in the United States to a checkbox on a form, I-M-A, but what I love already about what you're trying to re-territorialize is, well, there's a way that we talk about justice, about who is the, what is the figure, what is the highest value, the highest form that we're all serving, and what is that higher law, who decides that higher law, do we all agree on it? Those. Those questions are ones I think religion really helps us think through. And I think Dylan becomes a great figure for talking about secular power since, wow, look at how he's able to dip in and out of very extreme places of religious articulation and walks away unharmed, not altered. His, I mean, we don't know his interiority, but his public life seems totally secure. His secular status as a powerful genius is not altered by experimenting and what kind of person do we tolerate that from where it doesn't seem like, is he just playing around? Is this just costume to him? Why did you know Jews and Christians not rise up in hatred for someone who just grabs when he wants and leaves when he wants? There's something in that that I think is about a society that likes to imagine that sort of freedom to play is what we should be allowed to do. That's a very particular modern uh, pluralist democratic idea of what religion mm. does. But religion can also be seen as the very perspective that allows him to do that. The secularism that forces him forward is kind of a person who gets to taste and borrow, taste and borrow. But his persona is never altered or really refigured. His his person stays the same. And so when I think about popular culture and, and religion, I personally think, A, you know, we're getting much more robust conversations now in, in light of artistry and what we tolerate in our worried about in the authentication of an artist than we ever have before. And that's the result of a lot of changes in rock music. I mean, rock music criticism is not the same today. It was in the late 60s. And that alteration represents a lot of, I think, intellectual and social movements to think about the social circumstances that give rise to certain kinds of power. Um, You know, intellectually, I can point to a lot of amazing doctoral students who are doing really beautiful, cool projects. Um, A woman with whom I work, Amber Drumgoole, is writing a dissertation that's telling us about the Pentecostal history of Black sound in the 20th century and locating that particularly around a group of Black women, um, including Rosetta Tharp, but including a broader circle of women that she was friends with all of whom had effectively left their churches, but did have their origin in what we call holiness church environments. And Amber's doing two things. One, she's looking at how music education happened in holiness churches and what the relationship might be. So when we talk about black sound or gospel sound in 20th century, that's the holiness sound. It's not black Episcopal sound here, right? You're hearing a thing we call holiness. And she's trying to make technical, what is the kind of conservatory training that those people received that made possible their effects, their enormous outsized effects on the sound of rock music. But second, she's also looking at the kinds of personhood that can be sustainably made in musical life. And, and one thing she points out, it's very hard to be a married woman. It's very hard to be a person who does have to take care of family, friends. Relationality is altered by fame and artistry. And I think we can see that very powerfully in the figure of Bob Dylan, but she points it out it, from a Black feminist perspective of what other kinds of community could be around artists that make possible artistry not only on the scale of a sovereign male fighting for their own creativity and kind of mm. cutting down anything that gets in their way. So to me, this is about a social change and what we expect from our artists and what we expect from ourselves as consumers, not to be in an endless state of um, you know, self-loathing for the fact that I Keep going back to Adele, but to ask and do: Why am I socially conditioned to actually want and need and feel comforted by that? And what other kind of education can I do in sound to make myself enjoy Adele and also see other artists who maybe are obscured by the mighty fact of her light?
1: And and Adele herself, who when she won those Grammys, that that massive—I don't know—25 Grammys in one night, she kept gesturing publicly and stating, "Beyoncé is my hero." it's because of Beyonce that's the person that I look to that's the person I'm listening to I mean obviously beyonce is you know uh, closer to Adele's generation and 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 maybe it's just a bit of celebrity fawning but on the other hand um, it is it is naming influence it is naming power it is naming you know creativity at the highest level I I um, <laughs> you know I I think that one of the ways that um, uh, Dylan you um, has had such staying power for me despite uh what you named here as his um what could appear to be a kind of self-interest or laziness when it comes to actually truly recognizing where he comes from musically and the narratives and music that comes from black experience black music black culture um, is that he recognizes his limits i mean he 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 like most of the great artists is very very clear about the scars and the brokenness and the fact that he is not doing it for you he will not do it for you he can barely do it for himself right in terms of actually taking care of even the day-to-day spiritual physical emotional psychological needs and um vis-a-vis the the academy and whatever role academic study of popular music will play it was, in fact, as a movement, it was studying Dylan that sort of opened up the door to that. At the same time, that um, uh, black studies and gender studies and queer studies—I mean, these 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 pieces were all sort of coming together—and he just um, was—he just kind of opened the door. I don't even know how much there was a plan there. I don't even know how much he recognized his own power until you know he sort of got into it, and then well. Things tend to fall apart, but um, I, I I think that uh, what you've done here in thinking about this mythology, it in 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 and just going back to the to the article and and obviously it's within a whole orbit, a whole universe of work that you're doing and your colleagues and your and your disciples, your academic disciples, um, to really challenge us to think about Dylan and the Dylan mythology and these 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 pivotal moments in his career without a sense of humility, just does violence to what it really should be about, especially because we don't know how much longer Dylan's gonna be around to talk about it. He's, you know, it seems like 2024 is when the tour will finally end, but then there's a legacy just like the gospels or any other mythological material where someone's gonna still be talking about it. And the way we talk about it is actually gonna define what it is for us. So I think you've done an incredible service to, to those of us out there listening and reading all those ridiculous books about Bob Dylan, (laughs) there seems to be no end to them. And to know that we have um, so much more to think about and and discuss and uh, what a privilege it is to spend some time with you talking about these things. Thank you so very much.
0: Well, I really, I I really appreciate that. And I want to flag that um, when you say uh, how we'll talk about it uh, will really matter. And I think, uh, and, and you know, I think we, we sh- we're we're in allyship in this project, Stephen. Which is, um, I want to direct our attentions to the inevitable fact of the end of his life. It's not a moment of mourning, a lost season, a magical season of rock and roll. Which, of course, I worry and anticipate that will be the enshrinement of his end of life. But instead, to say that was a time, and he moved through time and continued as an artist, and. Uh, and I think found some graceful ways to be a artist in full maturation. But let us not romanticize that epoch because that keeps us from seeing the positive changes that I think there have been negative changes in the music industry, which we absolutely can talk about there's also been the power, the positive power of democratization and inclusion. We cannot oversell that because the form of life he offered was very limited in its availability. And it's not surprising that those I think who will mourn him most are in a time in which their season is not as strong. I don't think anyone can really say that this is a moment where white men are no longer in power. They're in enormous power all over, but rather there's an increased conversation about what the consequences of white power is. And Dylan is a figure of that justice. He was also a figure of insurgency, transformation, and self-critique.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's going to be an interesting time the next few years also as the, the Bob Dylan center, Bob Dylan studies and Tessa is, is just um, opening up. And um, a lot of the same narratives are already um, being pumped out there Um, and Dylan's team of mythologists is incredibly skilled. I think that he started with Albert Grossman, who understood it innately, and Jeff Rosen clearly does as well. And, and it's done some, some good and done some bad. Um, but, um, you know, out there listening, there's, there's a whole cadre of, of people who will need to be involved in shaping the narrative of that center. Um, because I really do believe, you know, going sort of back to where we began, if we live in the age of Oprah, or we live in, in the age of uh, of Dylan, or we live in the age of Beyonce or Ray Charles, or I, I don't know, I'm, it's not my job to figure it out. Um, it will be really important to create um, accessible conversations about this, uh, this mass of mythology that the past decades have produced for us. Because um, as we know, mythology leads to ritual, ritual enshrines power, And uh, if we want to live in the world much longer, we're going to have to do some work to make sure that those mythologies align with power in the ways that that do good.
0: Uh, Well said, Stephen. I want to be in that conversation with you. I look forward to it.
1: Okay. So thank you for your time, for your writing, for your insights, and look forward to speaking to you on another happy occasion. Thank you so much.
0: Let's find a way to do that um, after I receive your book and I'll write, I would love to find a way to talk again either in this Absolutely. context or another
1: one, Stephen. I'm really looking forward to it. I'd be to thrilled it. to do that. Okay, thanks again. Great seeing you, you. well. This has been Bob Dylan Goes Electric with Catherine Lofton. Thank you so much, Professor. For enlightening us and electrifying us with your thoughts and your ideas and your curiosity and so many opportunities to take this music and what it represents even here. We are still woodshedding with Philip Roth, Bob Dylan, and friends to bring to bear a long-promised episode in two parts on these two great artists. A lot of water under the bridge over the past few months. Thank you for your patience as we keep producing this final season of the podcast. We are coming up on episode number six. Very soon. We're proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Visit PantheonPodcast.com for All variety of podcasts for music lovers. Don't forget to look for About Man and God-in-Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan, wherever fine books are sold. I am your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel. Thanks for coming. See you
2: soon.